0: From my perspective, being a great manager is very simple. It's about being focused and devoted to fulfilling the full potential of your people. And if you use that as your true north, where you truly invest in realizing skill from the potential of your people, you will build a loyal following. Not the fancy spiff that you get for being top performer. That's really nice. But being really devoted to the investment of your people will pay dividends in terms of productivity and outcome and results. Hi, I'm
1: Jubin, Business Development and Go-To-Market Operating Partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Okay, so I like to kick these things off by reading my guests' backgrounds back to them. Okay. So let me go ahead and read it as it reads on LinkedIn, and then please go ahead and fill in any blanks. So you got your degree from University of Illinois, and then you went on to Advent Software. You spent about 11 years there. Really quick, you started out in technical support, then you went in as a sales consultant, Then you became a sales manager. And it looks like that was your first kind of sales management gig. Then you went on to become a relationship manager for four years. Then you managed premier accounts for about two years. Then you were a senior manager for premier accounts for nine months. Then you stumbled upon a company called LinkedIn. You were the director of sales for the hiring solutions division within LinkedIn. You did that for about two and a half years. And you were hired to create and lead LinkedIn's first existing customer sales team around that relationship management product, focusing on expansions and renewals. Then you went on to be the director of sales for North America for talent solutions, spent two years doing that. Then director of sales North America for relationship management, sales solutions for two years, senior director of sales for financial services. And that was all about seven and a half years, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Then you left you went to be the head of sales and partner success at Scoop Technologies. You spent nine months doing that. In the interim, you stayed on or rejoined LinkedIn as an advisor and a consultant on the on the op side for about seven months. And as of call it about two years ago, you joined a company based in Chicago called Relativity. You started out a year and a half ago as the director of sales operations and enablement. And as of about a year ago, you are the VP of sales. That's right. So I have a bunch of questions about your background, if that's okay.
0: Yeah. The first one,
1: I reached out to Mike Gamson, who is the CEO of Relativity and formerly, I think, your boss at LinkedIn as well. Yeah. And I said, Mike, you gotta tell me, like, what's a zinger here for Peter? What should I ask him about that I do not know based on his profile? And he said, Ask <laughs> I can't even say it's in the straight face. He said, ask him about his first management job when he was 14. As a weekend manager at Subway, you can ask him if he can still cut a nice U-gauge.
0: And U-gauge. It's U-gauge. proprietary. It's no longer used. What is that? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I, uh, that's funny. That story can only be sourced from a few people. Mike being one of them. So I'm formerly and proudly a former sandwich artiste. That wasn't a known badge of honor back then. So this yeah. is probably, I mean, my first real paying job. I mean, you did odd jobs like, you know, mowed lawns and stuff. But my first real job was 14 going on 15, where my father would literally have to drive me to work and start at Subway. And back then, that was a burgeoning startup of franchise sandwiches that, yeah. that frankly was on the rise. And one of them opened up in my town. And literally my first job, I had negative skills. First of all, I'd never handled food, let alone punched a a clock for a role. And for whatever reason, Dave Woods, the owner, the franchise owner at the time, decided that I was management (laughs) material. And so honestly, within the first few weeks of being hired, literally having negative skills, Dave Woods decided to hand me the keys to his store And I was the weekend manager, which basically meant I either opened or closed the store. I managed the staff over the course of the weekend and uh, was really just accountable for the business without supervision for those two days. I worked Saturdays and Sundays and every weekend. And that was my job for roughly a year. That was the first time I collected a paycheck. And it was both certainly enlightening and honestly, joking aside, it was, a, it was a really formative experience. I met some lifelong friends there, friends that I actually still work with today. And it also told me a lot about myself, about the things I cared about and the things that I had to improve as a human being because it was a very character testing experience. But yeah, it was a master of the U-Gouge. Back then, you used to create this little trough all the sandwich meat and ingredients could <laughs> stay in the middle. Again, it's patented, but they don't use that technique any longer.
1: Oh, my goodness. Okay. So, you know what my first job was? I was a sandwich artist at Subway. I'm not kidding. Uh And I would have, in this example, I would have worked with you. And at the time, the you gouge technique was clearly not there anymore because I didn't know what that was. And you were probably a much better employee than me. Like, you thought you had negative skills. I got fired from Subway. I didn't even think this was possible because I used to love their chocolate chip cookies. And... One day, I put a couple chocolate chip cookies in the toaster, like their industrial toaster oven that you put the sandwiches in. Unbeknownst to me, these things are nice and expensive and one of the kind of like grandiose pieces of equipment that they have in Subway. Long story short, I go to the back to clean the dishes. I thought I hit one minute or 30 seconds. I hit three minutes and I come back and the toaster oven's on fire, like it's smoking and all these things. So I tossed the cookies out. I didn't really say anything. And the next day, the owner comes in and he's like, Jubin, what the hell is this? And I told him and that was it. That was my last day of employment at Subway.
0: I fortunately didn't have to fire anyone. (laughs) I probably should have, in retrospect, being a more effective manager today. But I'm glad that we share some roots in the Subway family tree. I'd give you the secret handshake if I knew it, but I don't know it.
1: I think it's just being able to pronounce you, Gouge. Okay, so... There's a couple things that stood out to me about your background that I wanted to dive into a little bit. And I'll tell you typically, I don't talk about the shorter stints. I usually, if I was reading your resume on this podcast with my guests, I talk about the incredible eight year run that you had at LinkedIn and all these things. And some of the feedback that I've gotten from the audience is hey, Shubin, we've all had these short stints. And in some cases, these short stints are misfires. In other cases, you joined a company and it wasn't what you thought it was. Or there's just such a compelling opportunity that comes up seven, eight months after that you just have to go for it. And maybe that's because of a leader or whatever. So if you don't mind, Mm -hmm. and again, if you do, no problem. But the nine months that you spent at Scoop, it seems like this was your first opportunity to really own the number as a sales leader there, and that was probably really exciting, and not to put words in your mouth, but would you mind just sharing that experience?
0: Yeah. It was a huge learning for me. And you know I actually think what I find interesting, I don't, I don't know your listeners very well, but you know in tech, I think one of the things that I, I know in tech having worked at LinkedIn is that tenure is very finite. You, know, you can't expect decades of loyalty much anymore. Those are rarities. And certainly, you know, if you hit the five-year mark in most tech companies, that's a meaningful milestone in someone's tenure. It means that, you know, companies doing right. And I have, as you know, I've actually had really great luck and frankly, the privilege of working for companies I've spent a long time at and LinkedIn being one of them. Scoop was an interesting opportunity and I learned a lot about what it means, not so much about owning the number, but what I really care about as a leader. And Scoop was an opportunity that I got introduced to the founders, actually through Mike. He was uh, an investor there, and I think the product was great. It was in the ride-sharing space, carpooling specifically. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that that I really was enamored with was the idea of going to a smaller organization. At that time, you know, LinkedIn had grown to about. I don't know, 12,000 employees and not that size mattered because LinkedIn gives incredible span of control and really, really deep and meaty roles. But, you know, Scoop was an opportunity to take some of my experience. What was happening at my late stage of my career at LinkedIn was an interest to apply what I had learned in a new context. Felt like I had really learned valuable lessons as a professional. And I was ready to start expressing them in some other context outside of LinkedIn and frankly take some of my you know, nearly 20 years of experience and turn to a space that was new and different. I had no prior transportation experience. I had no real familiarity with the business model. So those are all the things that I was looking for, to be re-challenged in a new context. And that's pretty much what it offered. It was a really new category. It was really groundbreaking in terms of what it was trying to do, which is aggregate essentially carpools to create you know, ride-sharing amongst professionals going to similar destinations in terms of workplace. So figuring out where people live and where they work and trying to match them to carpool because there's Mm. obviously lots of benefits there. And the unique thing about Scoop was that it had a B2B angle. And so given the fact that I was not consumer tech, but rather B2B, I thought I could apply some real experience there. The lesson learned at Scoop was the following, that intellectual challenge alone is not enough to keep you motivated. And one of the things I learned joining a founder's company, the CEO co-founded this company with his brother, and this is a very clear vision expressed by both of them. I think, you know, one of the things I learned was there was a real intellectual interest in the space, but not personal interest, meaning, you know, this idea of reducing traffic and congestion and using transportation or more efficient transportation as a mode to do that, again, intellectually interesting, but I wasn't passionate about it in terms of personal passion. And when you make the sacrifice, joining an early stage company at that time, I was probably employee 30. You know, you got to make the personal sacrifice to really bring the dream alive in an early stage company. And again, I had the intellectual alignment, but not the personal passion and alignment. And so before my year cliff, and before there was, you know, real equity vesting moment, I chose to essentially resign because I didn't feel like I could give what the company needed in a sales leader to really grow that team in the way it needed to be grown. And so uh, I had a really frank and open conversation with the CEO and, you know, we decided to part ways and it was a real bittersweet learning for me, but that's essentially the scoop story.
1: Appreciate you sharing that.
0: So there's a couple of key people as I've
1: dug more into the LinkedIn lineage that keep popping up. Okay, You're one of them. Dan Shapiro, who we've had on the show, is one of them. Mike Gamson is one of them. And we're going to get into relativity in a second here, I promise. But when you first started at LinkedIn, did you know those guys? How long did it take to meet folks like Dan and Mike? Would you consider these mentors of yours growing up in LinkedIn? Just share more about those leaders.
0: Sure. I'll start with Having the chance to be a part of LinkedIn, certainly during those formative years, I look at it as the greatest gift as a professional. I, I don't expect there to be another LinkedIn moment for me. And I mean that from the perspective of the confluence of the company, the product, the people. There was just a huge confluence of really once-in-a-lifetime experiences that I really feel fortunate to experience myself. Mike and I actually professionally have had overlap for a long period of time. So my career at ADVENT, Mike was also there. We overlapped for eight years. So he Mm. spent nearly eight years there. And my journey to LinkedIn was through Mike, but for a variety of different reasons beyond Mike. So at the time, Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn was acting CEO. And his first CEO, when he took a step back, was not Jeff Weiner. There's a gentleman by the name of Dan Nye. Dan Nye at the time became the first CEO of LinkedIn. Before he was LinkedIn CEO, he was the general manager of a business at Advent, So I happened to know Dan because he was the GM. You know, that time I was an individual contributor. I didn't report to Dan, but Mike did. And so when Dan left to be the CEO of this small startup called LinkedIn, probably, I don't know, 35, 40 people at the time. Mike was one of the first people to join Dan there as a business person. So at the time, LinkedIn was predominantly engineering, obviously as a consumer platform first, early stages trying to figure out the monetization. Angle, Mike was hired by Dan to be part of the core business team, if you will. Mm. Mike was there for several years. And this is 2009 when I joined LinkedIn. If, for anyone that was in the workforce at the time, that's was a scary time. That was a really dark time in the US economy. And not much was going on in terms of tech and, and just business success. It was a dark, dark time in the job market. But it happened to be a great time to start something new because it we did emerge from the recession and LinkedIn really timed it well. I remember talking to Mike saying, listen, I'm coming up in 11 years. I don't think I can spend another 10 at Advent. What's this LinkedIn thing? Should I join? And Mike was just starting to develop a thesis around our B2B sales opportunity there. And so fortunate for me, I, I had you know a longstanding relationship with Mike and we kept in touch. And at some point in 2009, we had reconnected for lunch and decided there could be a there there. And so I remember we met for lunch in July. And by September that year, I joined his burgeoning leadership team.
1: How many employees are interrupt?
0: Yeah, overall, there were probably 350 employees when I joined in sales. I use air quotes in sales because it was it was a sales team. It was like the it's probably like 25 people trying to figure out monetization. And we had core belief that there was some sort of B2B recruiting solution somewhere tucked in there. And we were just trying to bring that to market. But yeah, I was one of five sales leaders that were hired around that time, managing essentially a team of frontline reps, all reporting to Mike. Dan was also part of that group. I did not know Dan, but Dan, you know, was one of Mike's early hires. And Dan goes down as one of my most impactful managers and leaders that I've ever reported to. And I really credit Mike a ton. So I I came to LinkedIn because of Mike. He had this real strong vision that there was a B2B value proposition that LinkedIn could unlock because at the time, there was strong inertia to be a B2C company always and to do self-serve and never have salespeople and you light up products and ads just through self-serve portal. So this idea of engaging B2B sales team, heavy, costly individuals is a relatively new notion that Mike was championing at the time and solely really... You know, believing that this is a viable model for LinkedIn. So we we're all part of this huge experiment. And I credit Mike because he put together this incredible core of people that have lasted long periods of time. Brian Frank, who has gone on to do great things, he's now the CEO at Cameo. He was our first operations guy. Dan was just an incredible leader that just had so much potential and just became just a fantastic, fantastic leader for the business. Just a whole cohort of people that was just really wonderfully assembled. So Mike did a great job of collecting the talent that ended up helping grow LinkedIn to a multi-billion dollar B2B SaaS business.
1: Yeah, so this might seem like a silly question, but it reminds me when I was talking to Carlos Dellatori, Torre, the CRO of Trip Actions, when he was at PTC, he was also recruited by a guy named, I think, John McMahon. I might be revising history here, but long story short, there was a cohort of the first sets of who were to become business leaders at this company. And it was people like Dan Fougere, who's now the CRO of Datadog. It was people like Carlos. And I guess I will ask you this. Did you know then, when you looked around the table, was it at all obvious to you or was there any signaling how legitimate these people, including yourself, would be at some point? Carlos described it as, we had a bunch of really enthusiastic, highly intelligent people that made each other better. And so part of me is like, well, maybe being around all of this greatness made you as individuals great, as opposed to you all had this innate greatness that was just destined to come blossoming out. I don't know, maybe your thoughts there.
0: Yeah, let me frame your question in a paradigm that I sort of use at the linear scale. And so you know, when you, when you evaluate talent, at least for me, I feel like there's a scale and the two endpoints are skill and potential. Those are the two endpoints. And so depending on where you are with respect to your hiring, the type of talent or team you're building, sometimes when you are building out a new team, you hire for skill because you want to bring in pattern recognition. You want to bring in experience. And there are other times where certain roles are better suited for people with potential, have no prior history, but they're the corporate athlete. They have certain intellectual elements that you feel are suited well for this type of more creative, abstract innovation because there is no precedence. And so again, on this continuum of skill and potential, you hire across the scale differently. I'll share my personal opinion. I suffered absolutely for the first couple of years with what is classically known as imposter syndrome. I didn't deserve to be there. I just got lucky. And I felt that way. And honestly, I didn't have the experience that merited. The needs of the job, meaning like I was being asked to grow a business from 10 million to several hundred million. That was my quota, if you will. Literally was like 15 million, which in itself was like ginormous to me at the time. And by the time I exited in the first sort of run in the Talent Solutions over four years, I remember my year four quota for my organization was like 310 million Mm -hmm. of AR, and you know I'd never done that before. And so I, I spent the entirety, nearly, of my first several years as an imposter that was largely a function of when you see great people i think that you just know tangibly it's not just raw intellect it's the potential it's it's how they apply their knowledge and experience and skill and their ability to incorporate new knowledge and reapply it so dan dan was a perfect example like dan's one of the smartest people i know intellectually but his potential was was uncapped and he just grew and expanded into the leader you see him today and you just knew it and you felt it and so i felt day one, a privilege to be there, surrounded by people that absolutely defined who I am today. And frankly, made me understand what really great professional skill, critical thinking, leadership, compassion, these are all qualities that I learned as a steward of being a part of this incredible leadership team that Mike had assembled. And so I definitely don't think I saw myself as personally great. I knew I was among people that had incredible skill and off-the-charts potential, and I felt honestly honored to be able to go through the journey with them and, frankly, call them colleagues and friends now. These are great people, and you sort of know it. It's an intangible, but it's clearly identifiable skill and potential that are off the charts.
1: How do you know now, as you're the leader doing a lot of this hiring, how do you know when's the right time to hire for skill versus hiring for potential?
0: I'll give you an intuitive answer as opposed to scientific answer. The worst sort of preface to any answer is it depends. I think a little bit is, there's sort of an unconscious calculus I go through. Some of it's risk tolerance. How much risk can you absorb by hiring someone that has great potential versus skill? I think needs of the team based on the existing composition of the team. So for example, One of the things I think about is balance and diversity in my team. And when I say diversity, I mean the little D and big D. You know, one being conscious of creating diverse teams, big D, meaning whether that's gender diversity, underrepresented minority, really keeping the big D in mind, but also the allocation of skill set in your leadership team. One of the things that I do believe is that a great functioning leadership team is not having everyone be the same, but everyone bringing a different skill set or uniqueness to the composite of the leadership team that makes it better, faster, stronger. So I do believe diversity is better as it relates to performance, arriving at more diverse answers through different perspectives, et cetera. And so as I take a look at my leadership team, I try to inventory where are we strong and where are we weak? And what does the next person who might join my leadership team, what would they bring in terms of additive skill, competency, et cetera, to bring that composite effectiveness of that leadership team to sort of a higher level. And so I guess to some extent, I try to look at balance, composite of the team. I also, again, come back to like my risk. How much risk can I take on hiring someone who hasn't been there, done that versus who's been there, done that? And a lot of it is Sometimes I call it buying the experience. Sometimes you're starting something new and it's just better to bring in someone who has been there, done that because they have the pattern recognition and you can replicate a winning formula to build something new. And so you hire for skill so that you can identify someone who has done something so you can replicate in your own environment. And sometimes you're, you're less interested in buying something that has been proven. You want to hire someone to, to do something differently and you might be more open to someone with greater potential with a core set of skills, but maybe not the specific skills that you need for the role, and you can be a bit more experimental. So I think it just depends, but I think risk, composite the team, those are some of the driving elements for me that lead me to hire for skill versus potential. For the people that
1: you have seen with great potential, the people that you have hired, the people that you have worked with, maybe you could lump yourself in that category. What are the, any key themes that you could draw out that were consistent enablers of getting them from potential to skill? Any tenants or philosophies that you really believe in yeah. that make that gap more predictable or, or something that is repeatable?
0: Yeah. I do believe there's a bit of past performance does help to you know reflect whether or not that will be possible. So, so meaning like, understanding how people adapted in situations where they maybe were underskilled or unskilled in a certain role, how they essentially became competent in their role, understanding their journey. So using past experiences is one, is one way to, to really zero in on what they would be like in your current role.
1: And does that past experience have to be in the
0: workplace necessarily? The answer is no. I tend to skew on professional experience. The words I tend to use is understanding a person's journey from an unstructured, like open white space opportunity, a place where there is no precedent, there is no playbook. How did they essentially chart their course where they became competent when they came into the role incompetent in the role? That to me is like really important to understand. So I call that like understanding the structured thought process and the journey that they took. People go from incompetence to competence in different ways. and. I think like for me, the speed and the process by which someone walks into a role as, you know, not having experience, how they chart the course, where they rest control over the situation where they don't have experience, how they essentially programmatically really develop those skills is really important and breaking down essentially the process by which they went through that journey tells you a lot about the individual. My guess is that blueprint that you use or that you identify in their past experience is the same playbook that they would apply in terms of taking someone with high potential that became skilled in role, likely that they will apply a similar methodology and approach. So watching what I call the experiential game film, I wanna understand the propensities, the decisions. I literally say, I want you to go into the specifics. What was that first kickoff call you did? What was the framework that you put together? How did you reframe the problem? Why was that a tactic that was useful? Understanding the specifics gives you really great insight into their likely behavior in your existing set of opportunities. And so I do tend to use past experience as a a primary mode to gauge for this.
1: So relativity, why don't we start there? So this company was founded in 2001. It has 1200 employees. It's based in Chicago. And tell the audience, what does Relativity do?
0: Yeah, so Relativity is in the e-discovery and surveillance space. For those people who aren't in legal tech, so there's a process in litigation called discovery where, for all intents and purposes, it's a process where it's the collection, the processing, the review of evidence that may be used in a litigious case. And so that process... Because of the proliferation of information, it used to be you know, hard copy memos, now information is all digital. It's in Excel spreadsheets, and in PowerPoints, it's primarily in email. All of those communications, those the paper trail, if you will, is digital. And so with the proliferation of digital information has exploded. And so technology, in this case e-discovery software, helps to collect and process and essentially create an infrastructure to take all this unstructured data, bring it into a structured environment so that people can review all of these different file types at scale and admit them into a litigious process that they need to. So it's a part big data, unstructured data, structuring data. These are terabytes and terabytes, petabytes of data around the world that need to be essentially reviewed through a discovery process. And we help create that value through our cloud product relatively
1: one. Walk me through, so Mike went there, got recruited as the CEO, and then he recruited you on, I guess, originally, as I look at my notes here, to be the director of sales ops. And then a year and a half later, you were promoted to VP of sales, is that right? Sort of. Ish, right-ish. I'm not a historian, clearly. Most of my history is, is rewritten in Jubin's own yeah, mind.
0: Yeah, yeah, so Mike <laughs> has been focusing a lot of his personal time in terms of elevating and nurturing the tech community in Chicago. So he lives in Chicago. It's where we grew up as kids. And you know, Mike was on the board there. And so I was essentially consulting, as you mentioned, I was back at LinkedIn Consulting as an outside consultant. I wanted a little bit more flexible work life after Scoop, a whole bunch of things on a personal level. My family and I wanted to take a, a trip. I didn't want to be tied down in the So I was a consultant. So Mike was actually a board member. Got me introduced inside the business, inside of Relativity, and I took them on as a customer. Did just really light consulting, mostly on the sales side, and just spent a couple hours there each week. One of the things that happened was during that time, this is before Mike took on the role of CEO. To be honest, my consulting gig exposed me to a company that I knew nothing about, certainly a category that I had never heard of. I'd never uttered the word discovery, never heard about it, and exposed me to a product and set of people that were really, amazing. I was really enamored of what I saw. And, you know, I think working for companies like LinkedIn, we can see some pattern recognition around product, the purpose of the company, the sort of impact it has on the customer base, and the type of talent that really can create greatness. I went from consultant to interested party, if you will. And honestly, timing worked out such that the operations role was the role that made the most sense at the time where I can make an immediate impact. It's not because I was an operations person in my prior life. In fact, I'd never done it before, but it was the most logical given where they were in the arc of, of their hiring need. And so I came on board and took on the title of director of operations, having never done it formally in the past, but always had a healthy respect for the role.
1: And that was your way to basically get your foot in the door.
0: That's right. One of the things I decided was I was going to work for them in whatever capacity, knowing that there were a lot of characteristics in that organization that I thought were destined. I mean, it was already a great company. I mean, I stepped in and it was it was doing incredibly well. But what's crazy is there's so much more upside potential in the business, and I knew that I wanted to be a part of it, so.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great story. So what I thought would be fun, and humor me here, if you will, but as I dug around with your team or folks that have worked for you in the past, is that you have a reputation for building future leaders. And as I was preparing for this, I found, which I didn't know was a thing, but there is something called LinkedIn Learning. And in LinkedIn Learning, Mike Gamson has a leadership thing. And it's it's basically a session, if you will, on becoming head of sales, developing your playbook. And I just thought it would be so fitting to basically go through some of the principles. And I want to get your take on which of these have you inherited? And maybe I'll just read some of these to you and you can pick which ones you agree with, which ones you disagree with. Dealer's choice here on whatever one of these you want to run with. Is that fair? And maybe this is a way for us to bubble up some of the principles that you have. And maybe some of those came from Mike, maybe some of those didn't, but I just thought it was so dang relevant. Okay, so here's what I'll do. I'm going to list these to you. And then you tell me where we start and where we go. Okay? Yep. So the first is develop a sales leadership voice. And he says, this is the moral bedrock or founding for how you make all of your future decisions. The next is the best recipe for inspiration. So to inspire others, you truly need to inspire yourself. I think this is what you were talking about a little bit about your experience at Scoop, which was that you couldn't inspire yourself. The next is how to understand your environment So he starts out by saying, you know, again, to your point earlier about as you interview, you look for what is that process of understanding? So he goes through the context of understanding your environment. The next is defining your objectives. The next is how to establish first principles. So, what are the things that you really care about? The next is reward and recognition principles. So, what are your compensation principles? What and who do you recognize? In the episode with Dan, he talked a lot about, hey, we don't have a win wire where we celebrate revenue numbers, i.e. this sales rep had a $10 million deal. We talk about and we recognize the supporting team that got that deal across the finish line. So that's what that reminded me of. The next is construct your strategies, right? So strategy is the means by which we navigate a competitive landscape. The next is execute your tactics. So you have strategy, Then you have tactics, and the last is observe, analyze, and adjust. So you're taking notes because I literally put you on the spot here, and I'm sorry for that, and I'm sure these are Mike-isms that probably resonate with you, and some of which you've embodied, and some of which you haven't. So again, dealer's choice, where do you want to take
0: this? I laugh because you know what's incredible about that LinkedIn learning session? I've, I've listened to it. I haven't listened to it in a while. I've been around Mike where his isms are, they become canonical. They are this Bible. Basically, they're truly his leadership playbooks and they exist not only in rhetoric, but in reality, I've seen them in action.
1: And this was so good, by the way. I watched it and I was like, are you kidding me? This is so good. And so producers, please make sure we put that link in the show notes. It is so good. Yeah,
0: it's the real deal. I feel like I'm still on my journey in many ways as being a fraction of the leader that Mike or Dan are today. I think one of the things that I noticed about myself and one of the things that I have tried to express as a leader is my leadership voice or the authenticity with which I operate as a people-centric leader. Let me explain. I think in sales in particular, there oftentimes is a culture of judgment that is largely dependent on a person's delivery of results. And for me, I feel like, don't get me wrong, results matter. In sales, it's one of the beautiful things about our role is that it's quantifiable. But everything that I try to judge is the process or means by which we deliver the results. You can deliver results in many different ways. And while the scoreboard shows the same outcome, the means to drive those outcomes matter. For me, I wanna create a sales culture that doesn't reward the results despite the means. We wanna create a culture that is built on, you know, essentially investment in our talent, meaning people-centric. From my perspective, being a great manager is very simple. It's about being focused and devoted to fulfilling the full potential of your people. And if you use that as your true north, where you truly invest in realizing skill from the potential of your people, you will build a loyal following. Not the fancy spiff that you get for being top performer. That's really nice, but being really devoted to the investment of your people will pay dividends in terms of productivity and outcome and results 10 times over than cash compensation alone. And so for me, finding my leadership voice around a people centric, an authentic people centric objective has been my goal, if you will, my constant pursuit as a leader to make sure that when you're part of my sales organization, You will feel invested in, not only in terms of promise, but actual action, because I do believe that that is the best way to drive results, is to invest in the people, to create a culture of investment so that you can really reap the benefits of disproportionate results as a result of that investment in your team.
1: I love that. I want you to keep going. I completely put you on the spot, and I want to let you take this where you were. The ones that really caught my eye were how to establish first principles and the first one that he said, which was developing a sales leadership voice. And he says that this is the moral bedrock or founding of how you make all future decisions. And then he goes on to say that leadership is the ability to inspire others to achieve a shared Shared objective. Exactly. Yeah. Sounds like you've worked for him before. And so I guess what he's saying is like, there's a framework here. Right, And you're going to be tested as a leader. And when you're tested, leadership blossoms in moments of trial and tribulation, not when things are going extremely well. And your true test of yourself as a leader comes in those moments. And what you're tested against are the principles, the voice, and who you are as a leader. And so that acts in a way as a framework for which you can operate within to say, am I gonna align in accordance to this framework, even when it's the tough decision?
0: Yeah, so this is probably one of the greatest lessons I've learned from leaders like Mike and, and Mike through his leadership team that I'm practicing myself. So this idea of first principles, it's an important one because once you have the guiding principles, the, the principles that help determine Good from bad, right from wrong. All the problems that you flow through, it's almost like a decision tree. Like we've agreed on the principles that will govern a decision. So let's take this real world scenario and flow it through the principles that we just agreed to because it almost like takes the emotion out of it. Okay, we've already had this intellectual debate about how we're going to solve this customer problem. I'm using this as an arbitrary example. And what are the first principles? Problem side, what matters to guide us on this journey. So for example, at Relativity right now, you know, we have a core principle, equitability, fairness and consistency matters around pricing. So we don't do things where our price is advantageous to a given customer just because they asked or negotiate better. We have as a first principle that every customer knows that they're getting the same price as a customer sitting across from them at a table if they're buying the same volumes of X. And one of the things that I think is, you know, Mike has just really been clear about is in order to arbitrate a decision effectively, it has to be consistent and it has to be driven by a set of principles because circumstances get tough and there's a lot of gray. And so how to diminish that gray and to create objectivity, it all comes down to your principles. And so he really pushes us, what's our rationalization framework? Let's decide on a couple things that we decide are going to govern how we're going to arbitrate right from wrong, good from bad, and then flow through all the problems so that it can almost self-regulate, if you will, and determine a very clear answer based on what we've agreed is right. And the starting place here is super important because one of the things I've learned, there's a wonderful set of other principles that Mike has shared in various keynotes that he's given over the years. It's about being a cultural leader. A great cultural leader does three things. They set the standard. So whether it's principles, rules, objectives, they state, here's what's important. Okay, Here's the process. You set the standard. Second thing a great leader does is you demonstrate the standard. Here's how it's going to work. And then you act accordingly. You can't say, we're not going to discount customers, but we're in a really tough deal. And it'd be like, hey, 20% off. You don't demonstrate the standard because that, what it does is it corrupts the authenticity of the principles you just established. So if you want to create a culture that respects the principles, you have to set the standard and you have can demonstrate the standard and the third thing a great leader does is uphold the standard in others when they do not themselves demonstrate it. you got to police it and you have to ensure that it happens without defect across the organization. That's what a really great leader does and that's what Mike does so well is he's super clear about what right from wrong is that's what I kind of emulate in my own leadership style you got to live it and breathe it you can't just say the words and not act you got to state the words you got to act and then you have to uphold in others and i think that for me has really been one of the greatest principles that mike has shared i really try to be authentic to that paradigm because you know once you start saying a bunch of stuff but you don't act and you don't remove that person who is a violator a consistent violator of these principles then you've allowed corruption to essentially permeate your culture. And that's what corrupts culture. You gotta walk the walk, you gotta talk to talk, and you gotta uphold it in others. And that's basically the model that I'm trying to uphold in my own leadership journey. So I think it's a really good mantra. It's a really good model to aspire to enact. So
1: last question, I wanna be respectful of time. I've had the same thing. Like When you have great leaders, there becomes a lineage of, principles. And maybe we're overusing this word, but of things that they believe are true. And Mike got those from somebody somewhere. Okay. And those continue to get passed down and someone that Mike got it from, got it from somebody else. And then that passes down to Dan or to you and it goes on and on. And then you pass that down to your team. But at some point, the things that Mike believes are good. And everyone would say they are good, but they are authentic to him. And I think there was a set of things that he probably took and said, these are mine, these resonate with me, and these are true to who I am as a leader. And then you maybe took a subset of those. And if if you're your team and you're developing, again, like your brand has been developing leaders, they probably sound relatively similar in some of the axioms that they have and leadership principles that they have. Often when you first become a leader, it's very easy to imitate that. And at some point you realize you're being disingenuous I've been this person. I've become a miniature version of that leader and that leader in the sense of all of the little things that they believe. And while I might believe them, those are not the priorities in which I would set them. And I would reprioritize them in a way and add a few things and subtract a few things that are true to me. And what makes Jubin tick and what's really important to me based on the sets of values that I grew up with, et cetera. How do you think about that? And are there things that are really core To you?
0: I mean, you're getting at the core of like, how do I express authenticity? And I think it's an interesting one. And I guess one of the things I try to do as part of my own personal style is be truly authentic. And for me, authenticity includes vulnerability. And I think that vulnerability, because it's not a quality that you would expect out of a leader, but I think it creates a space that, with at least my directs, that allows me to engage in a more, it really, I think humanizes the positional hierarchical leader, I guess, technically I have subordinates, I, you know, they all report to me, but when, when you can create a level playing field in terms of authenticity, and for me, that's about being incredibly vulnerable with my team, sharing the good and the bad. I think for me, it has created my own flavor, if you will, of style, because I would say and I think about Dan or Mike or any of these great leaders, you know, in terms of extroversion and introversion, you know, I think there's like different scales of people. I would definitely, I'm not an ultra extroverted. I'm a bit more cerebral, maybe more in the middle. And so it has matched my style to connect on this like very deeply personal authentic level with each of my directs and my team in general. And that for me is how I create authenticity. So it's very much my own flavor of some of these principles that I've learned. I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, you know, I think most people that have reported to me or worked with me know that aspire to be incredibly authentic and forthcoming at all times.
1: Yeah, man, I'll tell you, your vulnerability bled through this microphone from the minute that we started this thing. So thank you. I really appreciate it. So I always end with a couple of the same questions. The first is relativity hiring. If so, where, how would someone get a hold of you?
0: I'm on LinkedIn. Of course, I'm super active on the platform still. Email as well. Email is very, very simple. Peter.Kim at Relativity.com. We are hiring. And you know while we're Chicago-based, we certainly are, in light of the pandemic and, and remote work, hiring all over the United States. So we have locations in the UK, London in particular, US, Chicago, of course, but anywhere in the States. And we also have a team in Krakow, Poland as well as a burgeoning and growing team in Asia Pacific, based primarily out of Australia and Hong Kong. So we're always looking for great talent and certainly always stewards of pipelining. So personally and selfishly, I'm always willing to talk to great sales professionals around the world. Last question, what does the word
1: grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it?
0: For me, grit has an element of deep resolve and GSDness, you know, get stuff done-ness. And so part of it is not just producing results, but doing it in a particular way that's enduring and lasting. Just like person can deliver, but do it at, remove all those obstacles that typically can be excuses for other people. Gritty people can just get it done and find a path to do it. And so for me, that's a characteristic that I think is one a great one to emulate in a situation where hiring new people or have an early team, having a team of gritty individuals is always a good formula for success, especially if you're on the results driving end of the equation.
1: On our round two, I can give you the inspiration behind the title. Peter, thank you so, so much for your time, man.
0: Yeah, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email gtmg at Kleiner If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you and I will see you next time.